Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees, and nothing that we say reflects our organizations, and thoughts and opinions are all our own. Also, please be advised that our podcast can be rated PG-13, so if we have any younger listeners out there, uh, make sure to have proper adult supervision. Anyways, let's hop on to it. Katie, I think you have some really interesting conservation news updates. I do. So, um, shout out to my boyfriend, Grant, for bringing this to my attention, because he knows I love bees, and it's true, bees are the best, aside from Simon, yes. whatever this a lot of favorites. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the, the public voted that blue. They right are. Is, it's because it's they fine. are. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, anyways, <laughs> a couple weeks ago in, here in good old Florida, there was a sighting of an ultra rare blue Kalamantha bee, which is native to Florida. They were first described in 2011, but they haven't been seen since 2016. Wow. So scientists were not sure if this bee still existed. You could Google it. It is actually a really <gasps> it's cute. Pretty. It's like blue. It's like a shiny blue. It's like a Pokemon. Um, Ooh. And Ooh. it had. You have to be careful, though, because there are definitely some photoshopped. Blue yeah, bees. I mean, yes. But it had well. only been recorded <laughs> in four places in central Florida's Lake Wales Bridge. Um, but recently, they found it again. They saw it, and they were like, oh, my gosh, <gasps> it's that bee. And they're trying to – there are a couple of scientists right now, researchers, who are trying to determine their current population status and distribution, if we can get a better idea of, like, its natural behaviors and nesting and feeding habits and whatnot. They're a really interesting bee species. They're uh, solitary pollinators, so unlike um, – oh honeybees or other more i guess well-known bees they create individual nests instead of hives oh so that's going to be if you've ever heard that of making... would be why it takes go ahead <laughs> frustrating that's why it makes it frustrating i guess to well yeah them. definitely like, um can't just follow one to find but they bunch. actually put out some if you are familiar with what a bee house or a bug house is they put out a couple of these throughout like the area they're known to be in um they're basically Man, they're kind of like birdhouses, but they're for bugs, and they're really cute, and everyone should have one in their backyard. They're adorable. But they put out some of those in the hopes that maybe they will, you know, go, go into those. And, yeah, so they're just trying to determine their population, and hopefully they can get a, uh, you know, what's it called? IU. Conservation status. Yes, thank you. I was, like, trying to think You're of right. the initials. Um so IUCN. They can, thank you, IUCN, so that they can get more um, funding for, I guess, you know, help or protection under the Endangered Species Act. So, we all need more bees. Exactly. And they uh, are a threatened species because they are very reliant on a blooming plant known as Ashes Calament, which is so that's why it's such a highly specialized and localized bee. Just I love bees. It's good news. Glad it's still around. Hope we can protect it and learn more about it. Go blue bees. Go blue bees. We love it. That's so my little Katie, conservation update. Yeah. So Katie, would you say this news is pretty unbelievable? <laughs> oh my god. god. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I would, I had I a would good exactly one in say that. I no, think that this is... That was a really great one. I think this is Kenzie's first dad joke for the podcast. Oh, no. She Which was I'm surprised. Dad <laughs> surprised. I'm surprised. One of oh many. God. I'm surprised it's taken this long. Yeah. I've been savoring it. I've been waiting oh, to take my moment. Yeah. Awesome. Anyways. All right. All right. Well, with that, what are we talking about today? I'm glad you asked. We're going to continue our discussion from last episode where we were talking about uh, zoos and aquariums, the good and the bad. Um, so today, last week, we talked about the history. We talked about what a zoo is and what um, accreditation means. Uh, and that's kind of like the basics. And now we're going to get into more of the controversies the that surround dun, dun, dun. zoos and aquariums. So this is the part where... Um, I don't know about you. I got inspired to do this part of the podcast because one of my professors that I had at school, who I respect very much, posted something on Facebook that um, compared animals in zoos to to the stay-at-home orders. Um, and that really just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and it kind of bothered me because I do really respect this professor. So um, I'm glad that we're doing this subject especially at this time because i think that's a comparison that's not just made by him but made by a lot of yes people so this will kind of cover that a little bit um we're also going to address the importance of zoos and the conservation work that they do because really when it gets down to it the purpose of a zoo a good zoo is conservation and we want to highlight how important that has been um in our lifetimes and before so with that uh, we're going to start with the fun part, and I know Emily is fired up oh, buddy. and ready to go, so take it away. All righty. So here's the deal, kids. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, this is a subject that I am extremely passionate about, and if you would like to spend your spare time getting, you want to learn something today, you know, I will happily go about that. However, for today's purposes, we're going to try to keep it concise, because I could literally go on for probably at least 48 hours straight on this subject because probably. I, and we will. I think we're probably going to do a different episode on, on zoos uh, and controversies for like animal documentaries in media. And that's when Emily can really just yes, yes, soar. Yes, but we're going to cover um, my goodness. Spread we're gonna... the wings and fly. <laughs> Back <laughs> to the subject coming. at hand, my children. All right. So today we're going to cover a couple of um, kind of the mainstream controversies when people think of zoos. These are kind of the top issues that come up. Um, Like I said, we're going to be pretty concise today because I could just go on and on. So let's just jump right in. Um, When people think of zoos and aquariums, one of the number one kind of controversies or topics of uh, contention would be cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins in human care. Um, First of all, Again, I just could get so fired up right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain myself. Um, the main argument here that people tend to have is that, you know, whales and dolphins are very intelligent, which is true, um, and that they're so intelligent that they should not be kept in human care. Um, some of the other arguments are that they are mistreated or that their environment is not conducive to their well-being. Um, so let's just back this train up a little bit. Um, the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972 is we talked about this previously, but this basically says you cannot collect, harass, capture, kill any marine mammal in U.S. waters. So that applies to dolphins, that applies to whales, that applies to, you know, sea otters, polar bears, you name it. 
Exactly, or touch them. Just interact with little baby seal on the beach. Mm-mm. Back no, up. No, no, So, what Marine Mammal Protection Act has to do with this whales and dolphins and human care is that the in the United States, no one has collected marine mammals from the wild um, since like the seventies and eighties when all of these laws came into place. Well, let's let's be clear though. It didn't collect them from the wild for the purpose of exhibition. Correct. However. There are some marine mammals that are in zoos and aquariums that were rescues that could not be released back into Correct. the wild. Correct, right. Um, so, this... so I want that to be clear. Yes. So <laughs> if people say it's a wild rescued animal, that does not fall. It does fall under the Marine Animal Protection Act, but there are certain exceptions. Yes, so when an animal is rescued, um, NOAA um, and uh, Fish and Wildlife, they are in control of What's NOAA, when, when and if. Oh, God, you're going to put my acronym <laughs> skills to the uh, National Oceanic National and Atmospheric, Oceanic Oceanic. Yeah. And Atmospheric okay. Administration. I know it. I just had <laughs> no, to think I just, about it. For people that weren't sure. Yes, yes. Um, but they are in control of all of the rescue type situations. And so they know, you know, if this animal can be released, if it can't, there are certain guidelines that the government has in place. So almost 100% of the time, the facilities that rescue these animals or the organizations that rescue these animals are not the ones who have the final say where they go. But we'll get into that, I'm sure, at a later date. Um, now, the majority of cetaceans, whales, and dolphins that are in AZA-accredited facilities in the United States are have been born in human care. So, like all the dolphins at SeaWorld, most of them were either uh, born at SeaWorld or born at another zoological facility, um, etc. Um, now, blackfish is its whole entity of itself, and I could go on for hours and hours just about blackfish and all she of the sure reasons. Could. Oh, I really could. And I have We before. all could, honestly. <laughs> we, yeah, that's true. That's, <laughs> that's um, not an Emily thing. That's an everyone thing. That is correct. Um, the, main, the main bone to pick that I have with blackfish, and I have many bones to pick with blackfish, <laughs> is that people argue that the animals in SeaWorld's care are not treated correctly. And I just... I just think that that in itself, that sentence doesn't even make sense to me because you have people who work at these facilities who have, you know, gotten their four-year degree. They have slaved their life away in internships and you know, unpaid internships almost 100% of the time um, yep. and volunteer positions and, you know, just give their entire lives, their being to get to this point where they can work with these incredible animals and to say that these people go through all of that work and go through all of that, you know, turmoil to get to this point just to treat an animal, you know, to mistreat an animal is that just is insane to me. Like that line of thought does not even make sense. It's like, almost like saying you wasted your degree. Right. Like why? And that is I, so frustrating. Why it's would I wildly get a offensive. Right. Why would I go to yes, get a degree I'm, in marine I'm really biology? offended when when people say that it, yeah that's I, actually that's one thing that I've been told before is like well you're wasting your degree by working at a zoo and I, I it's incredibly offensive yes mm-hmm. um we will get into all of the good things that zoos and aquariums do um later in this episode but I just think that that simple line of you know like oh the whales at SeaWorld are treated bad okay who have given you know 30 40 years of their life to get to this point to work with these incredible animals and you, you look them in the eye and tell them that, you know, that they're not doing the correct thing by these animals. And I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It just does yeah, not make sense. It does not um, compute. That, that, <laughs> it, it really doesn't. The- I just like, you can say what you want about 
any of this, but that, that line I think has been my biggest, I guess, pet peeve of all of this is just, it doesn't matter. I think all of us having worked in zoos for a while have gotten some form of this said to us. Oh yeah. That we like, even if we like take out the part that's just about like the people who care for the animals, like if you fall back on like AZA when we talked about it, like they make sure that these animals in these AZA facilities have the highest standards of care possible. And um, one of the things I love about AZA that I don't know if we mentioned or not, um, but they actually require facilities to have, um, what is it called? Uh, they, they have like a board where if anyone who works in the facility feels that the animal is not being treated properly, they can go to the board and then the board will evaluate the animal and the care that they're receiving adequately and change things as necessary. Yes. There's a review board. Yeah. I mean, right. And that's the biggest thing with AZA is they're very transparent and it's very, it's very cut and dry, which is nice. Um, So like I said, we could go point by point Blackfish. I mean, there are websites out there that go minute by minute and just kind of dissect Blackfish. And we will do that at a later point in time. We're not going to do that today because we would be here for five (laughs) hours. Um, So um, moving right along, we're just going to jump into the next major kind of controversy surrounding zoos. And that is elephants. Um, Again, these are a high intelligence animal. Um, They are a large animal and you're kind of starting to sense a theme here with the whales, elephants. These are big, sexy, um, big, charismatic. <laughs> you got it. So um, now, elephants. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's fine. It's fine. You know it's true. I mean, the main the main controversy here stems from um, negative connotations of elephants in things like circuses, where back in you know the 1800s, these animals were not treated we correctly. About they that. were using. Right, exactly. They're using bullwhips. They're using all kinds of um, not great training techniques, things like that, things that we know better now. And, you know, AZA has all these guidelines. Um, Another big issue people have with elephants in human care is, you know, these are big animals. They live out in Africa where they can just roam around for miles and miles. And And so people tend to think, and they do, and people think that their exhibit size is too small or their social grouping is wrong because elephants, again, we're sensing a theme here, whales and dolphins, elephants, very social animals need that social interaction. Um, so what I did here, because I am again, more familiar with whales and dolphins than I am with elephants. Um, I went to the AZA page for elephants and let me tell you, <laughs> I learned a crap ton. Um, I've been on this page. All, it's I crazy. You love to hear it. It's a lot. Um, so this is just a small sampling of the things that I learned. Um, elephants in AZA facilities. So there is a 30 page document that um, goes through uh, all of the requirements to house an African elephant in an AZA facility. Now, this includes very specific details on the way that their exhibit is designed, what their diet is to um, consist of, what their social grouping has to look like, including the number of elephants of genders, et cetera, um, and ages. Um, it includes all um, documentation according to their health care, so preventative medicine, uh, care for geriatric animals, um, elephants, they need a lot of care for their feet, obviously. Um, that's a very specific one that's mentioned in there, as well as their skin. They have to have provisions in place for the safety of the animals, as well as those who care for them. They have to have specific shelter requirements, specific substrate requirements, specific cleaning requirements for their <laughs> environment, um, specific husbandry training, 
Um, husbandry training is any training that is for the care of the animal. So again, um, training for their care. We've got specific regulations for behavior management. If you have a problem elephant, um, you've got um, specific education initiatives that are to be pushed in AZA facilities um, and programming that goes along with that. Now, African and Asian elephants, I believe, are part of species survival plans, um, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit. So that's pretty great. Asian Asian elephants specifically are part of SAFE, which means saving animals from extinction. So there's a whole special AZA program just for Asian elephants as well as other animals that they're trying to save from extinction. Um, And then I looked into wild elephant conservation um, because this is, again, something I don't know a whole lot about. Um, And the AZA supports a few specific organizations, including the Wildlife Trafficking Alliance, um, known as WTA, the Elephant Protection Initiative, EPI. Those two big ones are partnered with AZA. And then there's a nonprofit called the International Elephant Foundation, which they give a lot of money to um, and provide a lot of support to. Um, So that's just a very small sampling of elephant stuff. And again, this could be an entire episode just talking about elephants, but... um, These animals are well taken care of. That's the bottom line here. Um, And now some of the main just general zoo complaints or general zoo um, controversies would be just the sizes of their environments. And I think this is a outdated thought that people have when they picture, you know, like a tiger in a concrete cage with bars, um, you know, from maybe back in the 1800s or early 1900s before we had the advent of modern zoos, which we discussed at length last episode. Um, But in today's accredited zoological facilities. These enclosures are built to those AZA standards with the animal's welfare at mind. Um, these animals are receiving the best veterinary care in the world. Definitely better health care yep. than I get. That's <laughs> for sure. um, so, yeah, no kidding. Hi, I live in the United States. What's health care? Don't know. Um, let's see. So they receive incredible veterinary care. I mean, from preventative medicine all the way up to, you know, emergency type situations. Those vets are Amazing. often on site 24 seven and they give their lives to these animals. Um, it's Seriously. incredible. It's um, really fun to talk to them too. Cause they we- have, they like, you can tell like what they're super passionate about. I got the chance um, for a project that I worked on with our facility to get to know a lot of the vets and they're like not only just really interesting people, but you can tell how much they care about these animals and how excited they are. Like, when the public hears about a baby animal, all of us are just excited. Most of all the vets, because they're like, I get to deliver this. And they're like super pumped. And it's amazing. Could, okay. Speaking of baby animals, could you even imagine being the vet that got to help watch the delivery of that baby <laughs> animal? Oh, oh, my God. I was really hoping you because, were going to say oh I God. almost started crying I because they were died. so excited. Oh, I like, was all, crying. All of the trainers that were around, and they all were like screaming because they were like, yeah. It happened. Oh, it, it was, was like precious. I was my heart. Okay, was so let happy. me just. It was a big chunker baby. The world in on a little secret because this is not well known, I think, and that is that in general, the babies of whales and dolphins do not have a very good survival rate. Period. Um, this is documented in the wild and in human care. Um, whales and dolphins in human care and in the wild, their babies typically the survival rate past two years, like up to the point of two years old, Low. is not great. It's usually 50% oh or less. Um, yeah. And yes, it's really bad. I'm sure that really humans bad. And, to do with that. Well, right. And this is, like I said, it's well documented both in the wild and in human care um, that these animals, you know, for some reason or another, it's hard to get to that point. Um, and so <laughs> they are, they're little babies. Exactly. 
Um, so to have a successful um, baby beluga out of Georgia Aquarium and then the shed just had one in the last year, um, that's incredible. Um, and I'm very happy for them. But again, I could go on and on. Um, so other issues that, uh, let's see, other issues that zoos and aquariums are up against, um, you know, thoughts from the general public is that these animals are bored. Um, we could do a whole episode on enrichment. <laughs> we will. And we will. Um, We're going but to enrich. <laughs> and we will. Um, but enrichment is anything that makes that animal's day a little different, anything that offers them um, mental or physical stimulation. So it could be something as simple as a toy. Um, it could be exercise for that animal. It could be interaction with others of the same species or different species. Um, I'm sure some of you have seen those videos going around. <laughs> penguins um, are everywhere. Oh, yes. Yes, the penguins that get to wander their zoos and aquariums oh, and go oh, meet oh, all the other animals. God. I saw one where a sloth got to meet the dolphins, mm. which oh, I just thought was that adorable. Was the best one. That was so good. <laughs> yes. My favorite one was the so, tegu and the sea lion. Oh, yes. For oh anyone that doesn't know what a tegu is, really, really, really large lizard. Um, the zookeeper was holding it up to the glass, and the sea lion was just like, What? the heck <laughs> and I think of the tape yes. the tape flicked out his tongue at one point and the sea lion's eyes got like, <laughs> what? Um, he's like yeah, what in the best world video I've ever seen in my life right there yeah, so all of those um could be considered enrichment again they're just making the animal's life different they're making their day different um a lot of places they have um you know the every day is different for these animals it's not like every day they wake up they get breakfast at 5 a.m they go for a walk at, you know, 6.30 a.m., et cetera, et cetera. Wait, Their day is always different, so they're keeping it fresh. Do I have a dog? And that's not to say well, that routine is bad, though, um, because that that in, ensures a lot of trust in the animals and their keepers. That builds a big bond between them. Like, they want to keep them, like, especially when it comes to mealtime and, you know, like, going right, into right. a barn or shifting. Like, those things are very consistent because that's – that's comforting and some the animals, animals they know they have control over what's happening some animals need it too i used to work at a nature center where if you did we had two um owls we had a barred owl and a northern sawwood owl and if you've never <laughs> seen a northern sawwood owl look it up it's tiny and amazing but if you did anything for them um for their husbandry or care out of order they would like lose their shit they could not handle it <laughs> they were like they're like, I don't know what to do now. Like they wouldn't eat because it was out of, out of order. So it's about knowing your animals and you can't do that without, right. you know, interacting with them. Right. Yeah. So the, yes. Um, so bottom line, these animals are getting lots of things in their daily life um, to keep things interesting for them. Um, now, when it comes to their food, again, just like they receive world-class healthcare. These guys are getting <laughs> world-class food. Uh, I can speak for a certain animal that lives in our facility that we work at. Um, she receives two lobster tails uh, every day. And she receives some delicious crab. And she's still sassy. She receives... <laughs> um, we have another animal in our facility who eats big ahi tuna steaks and she will not eat anything other than that. She's like, that is my snack. You try to feed me a squid, I'm going to spit it right out because I don't want it. Um, they, know, they know what they're about. They're high They do know what they're about. So, yes. Um, so these are animals are getting restaurant quality Only foods, the best. all USDA certified restaurant quality. It is 100% better than the food I'm eating on a daily basis. Um <laughs> And an important part to note about this uh, food stuff is that um, zoos have nutritionists. Now, this is a fairly new field in zoos, yeah. um, is animal nutrition. So um, not every facility is lucky enough yet to have a nutritionist on site. 
Um, but many facilities that do have nutritionists work very closely with other facilities um, to create the best nutritional um, diets for their animals. So that's pretty cool. Because not always can you replicate an an animal's exact wild diet, what they would be getting, you know, in the wild, but obviously you want to get as close as possible. And often that's when you see animals, you know, getting like additional feed, like just, you know, Mm -hmm. things like a multivitamin that we would take every day. It's the same kind of idea that they just want to make sure they're getting all their nutritional needs and figuring out the best way to do that. That's easy for obviously that the animal is going to enjoy. It's going to eat, but also um, that's easy for their keepers to give them and to clean up and to prepare. You know, those are all really important things to consider about nutrition and diet for animals too. Yes. Um, And then another. Your girl has handled a lot of crickets, and it's just. Crickets are the worst. Well, thank you for that beautiful (laughs) on crickets, baby. We're just having a great time today. Um, Another issue that people have with season aquariums is they think, oh my gosh, this animal's all by itself. That's so sad. Okay, let me. Let me stop you for many reasons, but the first reason is, one, you're anthropomorphizing these animals, which you should Mm -hmm. never do, and two, have you considered, have you, have you considered the fact that perhaps, maybe, this animal (laughs) might be a solitary animal? can't be. Impossible. Everyone needs a friend. I had that happen with my ex. Solitary animals. (sighs) But that is, that is always, I've had, yeah, like, the same situation has happened to me a million times over, and... It, it is it's, it's an anthropomorphic problem it's just and that it's idea that we need interaction know. either like if they have one animal odds are they have more than one of the same species and those animals do get to interact but they don't like always being together mm-hmm. yeah let me give you a brief example here so there's this beautiful movie i'm sure most of you have oh. seen it called finding nemo <laughs> great movie and in this film in this film, which, by the way, my favorite film of all time, but um, there's a group of green sea turtles, and they hang out mm-hmm. together. They're living mm-hmm. their best life in the EAC, just hanging out all the time. Okay, let me break it down for you. Sea turtles are not colonial animals. They are solitary. They do not interact with each other outside of mating and possibly like, hey, buddy, I'm eating seagrass too. Oh, yeah, this seagrass is delicious. <laughs> That's really about as close as they get to any interaction with each other. They Except do not mating. have social interaction. Um, sea turtles, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and their brains, in a full-grown adult, are smaller than a walnut. So they, they do not have the processing power. Um, I used to work at a sea turtle hospital, Okay. And this facility is built so that there's a big pool where a lot of the rehabilitated sea turtles live. They're swimming around, eating their snacks together. Well, the reason that these sea turtles can be together is because they are green sea turtles. They are herbivores. They're only eating vegetation. They are not looking for live animals. Now, if you look around the facility, you may notice that there are some loggerhead sea turtles. And they are all by themselves. Each one is in their own area because loggerheads are carnivores. What do they eat? Meat. So they will not get along with other animals and other uh, sea turtles in general. They get very aggressive. They get very territorial with each other. So this is why they do not get to be around each other. So they are solitary animals. Um, And I just, (laughs) I could go on a eight billion hour rant about other solitary animals. Now with, that's not to say that, 
you know, there are social animals, you know, things like dolphins and every meerkat. Plenty, plenty of I don't know why meerkats came in my brain first, but um, there's always a lot yeah. of them. Wildebeest. Oh, wildebeest is you special. Name it. There's, there's plenty. Yes, they like to be in large, 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 large groups. Um, so these things are taken in, into consideration when these facilities decide to have these animals. They say, what does a typical social group look like for this animal? Um, what does the male-female split look like? What does the hierarchy look like if there is one, if there's not? Um, all of these things are taken into consideration. So when you go to a zoo next time and you see an animal that's all by itself, think to yourself maybe, <laughs> hey, do, you think, do I think this animal could be a solitary animal? And if you don't know, lucky you, ask an educator. They might know. Um, There's also obviously see, special probably be very situations that an animal may be right. housed by itself. Like there's, there's a exactly. million and one reasons. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you that the reason if you see an animal by itself, it's not because it's lonely. <laughs> it's, you know, that's yeah, absolutely definitely not. probably the yeah. last reason. And Katie, so. you brought up a great point about um, anthropomorphizing. Um, I can never get that word out the correct way out of my mouth. But <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard um, one. For those who don't know, do you want to define like what that is for us, Katie? Yeah. So basically, it's when people attribute human characteristics or behaviors to an animal. So um, I think the biggest like question as an educator that I that I'm sure we all get a lot is when someone comes up to you and asks if an animal is happy. Yes. Um, where you are, where, where, whether it's a zoo or an aquarium, they, you know, are you're at a location, they point to an animal. Is that animal happy? Um, I always have to take a moment and, you know, understand where this person is coming from because just to ask if an animal is happy is already anthropomorphizing that animal. Um, happiness is something that humans have defined, have, you know, we experience. It's, it's a human emotion that we have given a name to. Um, to attribute that to an animal that does not have the same <laughs> language or just you know, that we we don't know way that we perceive the world. They do not perceive. We do not know the way in which they perceive their world. We can make educated you know guesses um, based on their behavior and what we learn about them, but we cannot. I cannot tell you if that animal is happy. I can tell you that that animal is exhibiting behaviors natural behaviors that indicate that it is healthy, that it is not stressed, that it is, you know, in in every sense of the word happy. Um, But I cannot say that it is happy. Like, does that make sense? (laughs) Well, and we have a true definition of if other animals other than humans even experience emotions or if they're the same kind of emotions. Well, that's the whole thing. Um, so we just avoid that in general because we have no idea of, like what goes on like in a dolphin's brain um, about and that's not even to say that I don't think that I look at a dog for instance and know like if I see a dog wagging its tail that is a behavioral indication that that dog is either playful or you know excited yes. and yes those are all things that definitely indicate that dog is to us happy so it's like absolutely there are behavioral indications however it's just a dangerous it's a slippery slope that's what the problem is it's a slippery slope to start out with the are they happy and then moving on into 
like Emily mentioned, all those kind of, well, I think it's enclosure is too small because if I were living in that enclosure, I'd think it was too small. Yeah, you probably would because it's a bat enclosure. You are an entirely entirely different species. You you have different needs, obviously. So that's just where I think it can be a dangerous slippery slope. And I think that's why that question can be tough because when you start anthropomorphizing, um, things can get a little... Yes. And what, what um, even is and then, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, <laughs> what even is happiness? All right. Let's not get too existential this morning. <laughs> happiness is ice cream. That's the short answer. Um, <laughs> moving right along. Um, one last note I wanted to put in here um, on kind of, you know, animals and human care. Um, people will say we just talked about anthropomorphizing them. But there have been studies, and if anybody wants the receipts, you just let me know. I can hook you up. Um, <laughs> but there have been studies that show that animals in human care um, produce less of the stress hormone cortisol um, than their wild mm. counterparts do. Um, so that is a definitive scientific piece of data that we have that shows that animals in human care experience less stress than their wild counterparts. And if you think about it, it can, can, makes, makes a lot, a lot of, sense of sense because these animals don't have to worry about when their next meal is coming from. They don't have to worry about. They don't have to worry about becoming exactly. a meal. Exactly. You know, they don't have to worry about a lot of things that our wild animal counterparts do have to worry about. Yes. Um, and so that I just think is a nice piece of information to give people if they are really kind of on the fence, um, and, which is nice. And I think like it's also important to mention that it's not that they don't receive like zero stress. Uh, right, because for that's dangerous too. Beings, we need some level of stress in our life. Otherwise, like oh, you need some excitement yeah. in your life. So, like, <laughs> for example, if you're looking at a meerkat open habitat, um, and a hawk flies over the habitat, <laughs> will respond <laughs> adequately to that hawk and go inside um, of their like little tunnels that the zoo either has built for them or that they built for themselves which and that's like yeah is a natural behavior and that's why they built the tunnels right. in the so that's place. like an example of like natural stress that's good for them but of course they're not getting nearly as many predators as they would in the wild so that's why they have less mm-hmm. stress like emily said um than their wild counterparts right also it's important to note that cortisol levels if you're doing a study on like an animal and evaluating their stress cortisol levels will strike not only if they're stressed because say a predator is chasing them but they spike when they mate um they'll spike when they are really really um just like kind of it, it doesn't matter if it's necessarily something scaring them or something's exciting them you know it's still going to have that spike in that um hormone so sometimes it it can be spiked by different things too um all right um one last note on controversies in zoos again many of these issues we're going to cover in depth at another point in time we're just kind of giving a brief overview today um but there have been especially in the last um decade or so there have been some uh zoo tragedies that people tend to call out when they're saying oh well look at this look at that um so those would be things like harambe um which was in 2016 Mm -hmm. um we have tilikum um the killer whale in 2010 we've got uh there was a jaguar attack at a zoo in arizona um and a wild dog um 
I don't know what the word is here. Confrontation, I guess, would be the right word um, in 2012. Now, almost all of these have a running thread in common here, and that would be visitors to these zoological facilities did not or chose to ignore uh, signage or direction of people um, and ended up in unsafe situations, both for them and the animal. Um, And sometimes Mm -hmm. this does not end well for the animal. Sometimes this does not end well for the people. We're not going to get into detail here of these specific incidences right now. Um, But the main, I guess, takeaway from this is if you go to a zoological facility, you need to have a, some common sense, which I know is a hard (laughs) ask. Um, <laughs> you just insulted all of our listeners. I know we're asking. Oh, hey, no! I'm just saying. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I also want to jump into the beluga whale pool. Um, however, Girl, I realize. What do you think? I think every time I see a manatee, right? It's hard to ignore the part of my brain that says. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now, so the point is, you need to be you know, cognizant of the people you're with and cognizant of your own behavior and your own ability. And maybe don't jump into the lion's den, you know? I mean, have you considered that? Yes. Please um, do not. Things. And then... <laughs> Literally and metaphorically. Pick up your child. Oh, my God. Place it over the fence yeah. where the gorilla habitat is. It's not... Right. Not a good idea. They had to... Well, they, and that's... Here's the other thing is when these tragedies happen, number one... One thing to note about these tragedies is they are freak accidents. They, like, don't expect them to happen, but the zoos respond once something like this has happened. So, for instance, after the Harambe incident, the Cincinnati Zoo went and re-evaluated their gorilla area to make sure that it wouldn't happen again. After the Tilikum tragedy happened, they started putting in, um, the AZA started putting policies in place that would make it so you don't have direct in water contact with orcas, right? Um, with these other zoos, I don't know what their response was, but I'm sure that they went back and reevaluated um, the area so that this kind of thing would not happen again. Yeah. I right. think the moral of this story is uh, if you go to the zoo, first of all, you're liable for your own <laughs> actions. And second of all, just be respectful. Be respectful I mean, you're coming into this place All to the see rules. these fun animals. It's their house, you know, not yours. Don't jump in their habitat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How would you like it if a hippopotamus just showed up at your door and came right in? <laughs> not I, great, I, I'm assuming. I would love it. So, so maybe. I would be terrified, but like I would love it. Sorry. Okay, not helping. Um, um, a really quick shout out to the Central Florida Zoo. Um, when I went there, they had signs all over the zoo. It was the same sign that said, see anything, like, it didn't say see anything suspicious, but basically, see, if you see something that's not right, like, example, someone is throwing something into an exhibit, someone is yelling at the animal, like, making noises, or just doing something that is against the rule, call this number. I love that. And it was basically the security number. Wonderful. Um, And they would come, and they would, obviously, that way, if you obviously are not comfortable going up to someone and being like, hey, like, please don't throw rocks at the alligator, that's really not nice. Um, You know, if you're not comfortable doing that, it gave you a way to still help, but not directly, you know, confront someone, and I just thought that was 
amazing. Well, I I kept pointing them out to my mom while we were there. I was just like, oh my god, it's they're beautiful. I love Something them. Something else that's really great yeah. that the Central Florida Zoo did is, like most zoos, they evaluate animal behavior, but they also took the time to evaluate their guests <laughs> because they were having issues where guests would feed the petting zoo animals um, human mm. food instead mm-hmm. of the petting zoo food that the zoo mm. provides. It, like literally studied like what signage works best for their facility and for the guests that come to visit their facility and it decreased how often people feed like the zoo animals human food that's beautiful yeah and lots of zoos do that so that's just one of the other things that are really great about signage sometimes guys (laughs) there's a study done 90 percent of people that go to zoos don't read the signs Mm -hmm. please read the signs that's why we're there. Right. That's why we're there. <laughs> I'm the 10%. <laughs> me too. Yes, me too. I read. I can't leave an exhibit. It makes your visit so much everything. more fun, though, because you learn so many crazy things, and you're not just, like, looking, and you're like, ah, it's an animal sleeping. Because if the animal is sleeping, and you think the animal is cool, read the signs. You're going to learn something, not, like, awesome. I have I have been known to take pictures with good <laughs> signs at zoos and aquariums. Yes. For example, yep. the last time I visited Monterey Bay Aquarium, they had a beautiful sign explaining the difference between seals and sea lions, which is my number mm. one animal pet peeve um, <laughs> above all else. But they had a beautiful sign describing the differences. So I took a picture with that sign because God help me if I will not remember it. Not with the seal no. or sea lion, mm-hmm. but with the yep, sign. <laughs> that's the important thing. I also take signs of or take pictures of signs that say, like, please don't feed the wildlife. I, was like, I took bring, a sign that said, "All right, sea turtles." Mm-hmm. And I was real excited. Bless. All right, so we have now covered quite a few tragedies and um, kind of points of contention in zoos and aquariums. And like we said, we'll cover a lot of these issues in more depth um, in future episodes. So let us know which ones you're interested in. Um, but we're going to get into the fun yes. part, the real fun part this time, um, on all of the good things <laughs> that zoos and aquariums do. So Emily A has compiled a ton of information. Um, about all of the good things that zoos and aquariums do. So take it away. Thanks, Emily B. <laughs> um, Got you. So for this section of the uh, podcast, I'll be talking about the impact that zoological facilities have, like Emily mentioned. Um, most of the statistics that I'll be mentioning um, come directly from AZA, but please keep in mind that there are plenty of facilities who are not AZA accredited, um, who do contribute to conservation. So like these numbers I'm about to share are really just a fraction of the massive impact that zoos um, do have around the world. Um, so not many people know that zoos do in fact make conservation efforts. Um, I feel like that's one of the things that I wish zoos talked more about what they do. I think it's like totally okay to brag about all the great things that they do um but we don't do it enough. be proud <laughs> yeah say it loud um some <laughs> <zoos>. i whatever <laughs> some zoos will make a difference for uh animals or wild habitats like all the way like halfway across the world and some do it just in their own community Um, like for example, they'll plant specific plants for endangered pollinators, like maybe that bee that we talked about earlier. (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe the blue bee. Um, so there's like a variety of ways Correct. that zoos can make a difference. Um, but one of the specific ones that are within the zoo specifically is the species survival plan. And as you all know, we abbreviate everything. So we like to shorten it to SSP. Um, now there's a complicated definition of this, but the best way that we use to define this is by using a comparison. So if we compare SSP to a dating website, um, we'll basically keep track of all of the animal genetics and whoever has the best match. Um, they will put them up on a date, do introductions. If it goes well, we have a baby. If not, then they're going to try again with a different Um but SSP doesn't always mean that they do physical introductions. Some of the animals um, can be artificially inseminated, um, which I don't know if Emily B talked about frozen zoos or if we did in the last. We episode. mentioned it. We briefly yeah, so like mentioned frozen it. Frozen zoos—they have a very wide collection of. Um, animal like sperm or eggs, and um, it's not frozen sure animals it's... that are just hanging out. No, we not, did not mention not... that last episode. A frozen, <laughs> a frozen. There ain't the great woolly mammoth in the frozen. It's not like you know, an ice age where they're like through the ice caves. That's not what it is. It's, oh it's genetic. <laughs> it's genetic information that is kept. It's sperm, eggs, and embryos. It is not like we don't have like a frozen black rhino just hanging. So I want to make that clear. Right. <laughs> we didn't clarify. <laughs> yes. So that is an important clarification. Um, so the purpose of frozen zoos is to have collections of those things, so we can do artificial inseminations. Uh, but one of the really cool things and slightly controversial things about frozen zoos is that they do also have collections of animals, not animals, again, the <laughs> sperm and embryo um, of animals that have been classified as extinct, like, for example, the northern white rhino. Um, so with maybe a possibility of um, in artificially inseminating a southern white rhino with northern white rhino genetics they might one day be able to bring them back. But that's basically the goal of frozen zoos. We would like to avoid um, it, so, but... Oh, sorry. Yeah, we don't want it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's... Uh, can People can see that as controversial because, you know, do we have the right to bring back an, an extinct animal? Well, if and... we took them out, we should be able to bring them well, back. The other... That's all I have to say on that. We do have Jurassic Park, which That's has true. now, what is it, five movies <laughs> on why, like, well, we why joke about why it's a bad idea. Yeah, but it's, it's not. It's but at the not same a, time, we do have to think about, Rex. like, it, that's why it's not just so easy to go in and be like, yeah, we're going to just inseminate this rhino. Like, we have to sit and think about what is the outcome of this situation going to be? And are we doing this for conservation or are we doing this because we just want to say that we did it? Right. And really, the goal should be conservation. Yes. Right. Yeah, and you also don't want to do some. Well, I'm sure Emily will. Emily A will get into this a little more too. But when you have these programs, you know, you also want to make sure that there is a place for these animals to go in the future, in natural habitats and wild places. You know, you need to protect those first before the yes. animals can come back. And you, it's a perfect segue. Katie. So. <laughs> 
so you're that welcome. is you're another welcome. thing that um, goes into SSP, like she said. Um, they think about where this animal is going to be down the line. So, for example, if you have gorillas um, in a family group and you would like oh, to breed your gorillas and get um, a new baby, they have to think about what's going to be the plan if this baby comes out a boy or if it comes out a girl because they're very different plans for both of them. Um, like the males. Very yes. different social groupings. Exactly. The male, depending on that. If it comes out a male, they have to have backup plans for where the male is going to have to be transferred because the male probably, I would say like 99% of the time, will not be able to stay with its family troop because it doesn't do that in the wild. So they're going to match that natural behaviors that we talked about um and find a place for that animal to go and they won't even breed the animal if there is no place for that animal to go right yeah that's really important um and something that emily b kind of touched on um is managing the social groups accordingly and this also goes into play with ssp so if we don't want babies, um, they can either manage the social groups to where it's like a strictly female group or strictly male group. If that's not possible for the natural animal's behavior, they can actually give them birth control um, that can be compared to what humans take for contraception. People are yeah. really shocked by that, that you can give animals birth control. I'm like, yeah, man, I mean, <laughs> we do it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, and sometimes they do that just, like, even if that animal has produced, like, enough offspring with that genetic set, like, they don't want to have too much of one genetics because then, like, you can run into inbreeding issues, and that's not something that anyone wants. No, it's overrepresented. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, like, moving along with that, like, they'll, not only is it management, kind of like Katie also mentioned, for like individual populations of animals in human care, but it also helps manage reintroduction programs. Oh, this, this is, is my best. favorite part of this segment, y'all. Um, so speaking of, again, these are just statistics from AZA, um, but AZA facilities have um, 115 reintroduction programs. Um, wow. There's a lot. And I'm going to talk about some of my favorites. (laughs) And you guys can bring up whatever ones you guys love, too. Um, But one here in the United States um, is the California Condor. (laughs) They're so cool. They are really cool. And they have, like, really pretty coloring on their neck. It's, like, kind of bluish. And we need vultures because, like, they're the garbage men. Yes. Like, we don't want to clean up all of, like, Baby important. the animal carcasses that other animals leave behind. So, we're going to let the condors do it, okay? So, we got to protect them. Yes. They're, they're happy to happy. do it. Anthropomorphic. Uh, <laughs> 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 anyway. But, thanks to AZA facilities, um, they took the initiative to take in those last 27 Uh, which is not necessarily something we want to do. We don't want to take animals from the wild, but if their populations are drastically decreasing, we have to take every effort possible to bring them back and save them. Um, So they took those last 27 in and put them in human care in AZA facilities, 
put them on a breeding program, and now there are more than 300 in the yes! wild. Woo! And one of them just had a baby. Amazing. It was a huge deal. San Diego uh, posted it on their zoo page. There was like a baby condor. And, oh my gosh. Woo! The babies. I love baby it. Baby condor. So cute. And like, that's only just the wild population. They still have a population in human care, like Abby just mentioned at San Diego, because they're still ongoing this reintroduction program. Um, and of course, the ultimate goal is that we won't have to do that anymore and these animals can survive on their own. That's just one really great example. And I have another one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the scimitar <gasps> oryx is my favorite one. We all love them. It's my boy. <laughs> we do love them. They yeah, were once true. believed that people thought that they might have been the unicorns of the world, but you know, there's a, quite a few of those. <laughs> um, but these guys live in Africa, um, and there were once only 25 left in the wild of these guys, so even less than the California condor. Um, and they were collected and put on various breeding programs all around the world. Um, and they are now being reintroduced back into the wild. Um, and this is even more recent um, with reintroductions in the California condor. Um, so now there's 90 living on a wild reserve. Um, so it is a completely wild situation. They do not rely on humans for survival. They're breeding on their own, which is a great sign. Um, but they're on protected land. So hopefully- Yeah, the IUCN still considers it... Um, extinct in the wild right now because they still are in a reserve yes. but the hope is that we would be able to be like reserve gates are gone be free yeah definitely um and then another one i wanted to bring up that i actually just learned about let's hope i can, well, I can help you i have these at my zoo is it shavalski or fabulous okay it's horse, guys. so it's <laughs> What? Okay, it's a, it's a Russian. That word is shav. Oh okay, let me, someone let me explain to me how those letters make that noise. Um, people also call them. So, for those who don't know, it's spelled P R Z E W A L S K I, um, but it's pronounced Shavalsky. We also have we also call them P horses. What? So, whichever one you pick, they're both that right. Sounds um, easier. But yeah, it's a Russian word. So, if that helps you out, I've answered that question many times. That's wild. <laughs> you're welcome fabulous um so one of the really um interesting things that drew me to talk about this animal in this segment was that they are considered the last truly wild horse in the world now there are wild populations of horses in the world but those wild populations of horses like those specific species have the capability to be um like ridden and habituated or used for like domesticated purposes that people use horses still today for um this horse was never i don't want to watch spirit <laughs> spirit what a great they movie. are not like apparently they're like feisty little things um so you don't want to and they're, them. they're not that big either like they're little they're not Aren't they the size? Yeah, of, like, they're a like donkey? donkey size, so it's like you could ride them, but like you don't oh, want to. Love that. Right, <laughs> but they also will they not also let will you. not. Let you. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, they've never been domesticated. <laughs> yeah, so that was what drew me to talk about this animal. But 
Aren't oh my they? god, they're so they're cute. cute. They're like kind of <laughs> like just like a chunky horse. Yeah. yeah. Like I a boxy them. horse. Um, but they they were de- declared extinct um in the wild and remained that way for 30 whole years, guys. Um, wow. And at one point, there were only 12 Jeez. left in the entire world. That's in human care and in the wild. Yes. Which is insane. That's like nothing. Um, but now they um, have been reintroduced back into the wild. And there's more than 300 um, living on their own in the Shout wild. Shout out to the Minnesota great. Zoo, my home zoo. They Aww. were a big part of that effort. <gasps> I love that. Wow, definitely shout out to them. Um, I don't know. Were there any other animals that you guys just wanted to touch on really quick? Yes. That are, like your favorite Wyoming toads. They're super cool. Um, they live out in one um, one basin in Wyoming and zoos all over the um, country in the United States um, through an AZA species survival slash management plan. Um, they're starting to be reintroduced. So you can go to their website and learn more about that one. Love that. Um, so that's like just one of the 115 just within AZA facilities. But like I said, like there's so many more facilities around the world that are making a difference. Um, just to name a few more, not to go into details of them, but there's the American Bearing Beetle, Bongos, the Amur Leopard, Wamrails, um, are just a few more examples of animals in those reintroduction programs. Um, now, the next thing is that money is a very big factor in the success of conservation organizations. It's unfortunate that we have to rely on money just to save species um, and animals and their habitats around the world, but it's the reality. Um, so AZA accredited facilities have recognized that and they fund over 2,500 conservation projects in more than 100 countries and they spend on average $160 million in conservation yes. per year. Yes. Woo. Which that's is a lot of money. Crazy. Guys, that's only AZA. Yeah, that's not the individual zoos. That's just AZA. That's well, crazy. That's AZA facilities, oh, never mind. I lied. Uh, yeah. On average. <laughs> yeah, but I'm only like these are only <laughs> AZA facilities. Like there's tons of other facilities who are not AZA accredited who contribute to conservation. Um, but AZA themselves um, has oh, that's their what I was own thinking conservation of. fund. <laughs> yeah. And $7.7 million supporting over 400 conservation projects since yes. 1991. So guys, that's a lot so- of money. So next time somebody is like, well, why do we need zoos? Like, I'm a research scientist who thinks that, like, working at a zoo is a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. These zoos fund so many research and conservation projects. They do. Yes. I say, without zoos and aquariums, a lot of these little um, NGOs across the globe would not exist. They just wouldn't have the funding. Um, and zoos are able to bring their projects to light and bring them to people who would otherwise not know anything about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does definitely put them on a very public, you know, forum too, which is super important <laughs> as we <laughs> educators know. But um, I also feel like it's really important to mention that 
you know, we, we talk a lot about species survival plans and reintroduction programs, but without the funding for protection of land, for restoration of land, for, um, you know, just nature, preserving the nature wild, in general, the wild is not a uh, none of this would is. matter at all. Exactly. Um, but the goal is to make it that safe place again so that doing these species survival plans, breeding these animals in the you know, responsible way that AZA organizations do matters and that it will improve. And Emily A. mentioned it, but the breeding is just one part of the mm-hmm. species survival plan. There are so many components of it genetics and breeding is one but then the habitat protection is another the education is another the funding is another it's all part of this bigger plan um so we're not just focusing on one thing we're trying to get the whole picture Um, thank you what would the world look like without zoos um without zoos the public would not have a connection to wild things in wild places My personal connection to zoos is, as a kid, I remember loving to go see animals at zoos and aquariums because I could see and learn about these animals that I would have never been able to see in my backyard. Um, And only just like a couple years ago, I learned that in Florida we have skunks and I've been living here since I was three. And I didn't know that (laughs) until I saw skunks at a zoo in a Florida habitat section. (laughs) Only anyway, <laughs> I recently learned more about skunks in Florida and love them. But as a kid, um, I was able to have the chance to fall in love with orcas and elephants and wolves. And I was able to learn to not be afraid of animals like snakes and tarantulas and toads. Um, guys, I will never forget the first time I held a tarantula. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> they put it- That's a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. I would really like to hold the tarantula. They are something special, they let me tell you. put it in my hand, and I said, oh, I can feel it breathing. And then the guy that works at the zoo goes, oh, no, honey, the <laughs> is shaking. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but you still had, like, a connection, though. Like, that's the whole part of the like, I can story. feel like, it, it breathing. That, like, but, like, you were like, oh, my gosh, like, it's alive. And, like, you probably thought tarantulas were way cooler after that. Oh, yeah, and I have remembered that for, like, the rest of my life. (laughs) So, newfound respect Hmm. for animals like tarantulas um, because of getting that connection to them. And it's one thing to see it on, like, Animal Planet, um, like, seeing all of these amazing films about these animals in the wild. But it's something completely different to see them in person um, and learn about them, too. So I accredit my connection to nature and love to protect animals in the wild um, to zoos and aquariums. And I think probably I, a lot I of would, us. I would not love animals yeah, so much if my parents did not have a membership to the Minnesota Zoo when I was growing up. Um, that's where I first saw dolphins. And I got uh, I was obsessed with dolphins from the time I was five until the time I was 13. And after 13, I started working at a nature center and working with animals. And then I got obsessed with all the other animals. That's like how I got into that. And when I went to Zambia, like seeing those animals in the wild was amazing. And I wish everybody could experience it, but it was also like a $5,000 trip and not everyone just has $5,000 they can take. And that, and like, I wish more than anything that we would not need zoos and people could respect wildlife enough and have the ability to go see those animals out in the wild. But the fact is that we don't live in that world. 
Right. Not yet. Exactly. We're working on it. Not yet. Yes. And there was something that We're I heard from it. a zoo professional at the facility we work at. Um, and they said that we work in the conservation business to put ourselves out of a job. And that was like so like monumental for me to hear the fact that they like these people don't even care about having their job. They just want to save animals in the wild. Which I think is all of our goals working at a facility. But just to prove it with research, <laughs> how <laughs> zoos do make a difference, um, Emily B. sent me this article about, um, it's called Why Zoos Matter, Assessing the Impact of a Visit at a Zoo or Aquarium. Um, and they researched um, if people are more likely to take action in making conservation efforts, along with many other things. Um, but they actually found and were able to prove that um, visiting accredited zoos and aquariums like AZA facilities encourage people to take action in conservation efforts, give guests a stronger connection to nature, and guests reported that they took away new knowledge about wildlife they did not have before. Yes. Um, Truly the dream. I was going to say a big thing I feel like I learn every time I go to a new zoo or aquarium is something way I can be more eco-friendly in my own life like whether it's learning how to make a bug hotel or uh, they advertise this you know shade-grown coffee that I didn't know about while I was there it's like all those things I always feel like I learn from going to zoos and aquariums and other places like that too so I wanted to mention one quote that AZA said. Um, they said that zoos and aquariums are some of the best places for you and your family to get connected to nature and become more engaged in conservation. So I strongly believe, as I'm sure a lot of individuals in our field believe, that without zoological facilities, the public would not have that special connection to animals and would probably care less about protecting wildlife in wild places. So... We matter. We do. We matter. You matter. Zoos matter. (laughs) So what can we do, Kenzie? What can we do to help? (laughs) Yes, that is a great question. So for our conservation connection today, we have a few things that you can do. So as you all know, there are places that are beginning to open back up. So if you are able to and you can visit responsibly, go visit your locally accredited zoo or aquarium. With your mask on. (laughs) Yes, please. And make sure to wash your your hands, folks. Hygiene is important. So yeah, get out of the aquarium. I was at an aquarium last week and they had so many hand sanitizer stations and we just used one every time we saw one and it worked great. Wonderful. Nice. Um, If you cannot go out to the zoo or aquarium or you don't feel like you're ready to re-enter into society, that's okay. If you have the means, though, donate to conservation. Donate to zoos and aquariums, especially since a lot of them are very dependent on public funds and donations. And if you're like me and you're kind of turned back into a hermit and you really can't go anywhere and you feel like everything's on fire, why don't you drink some wildlife wine? So there's... (laughs) 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 so there's actually a really cool product uh, that we have been looking at it's called wildlife wine club they recently partnered with aza and safe saving animals from extinction and you can get a sea turtle chardonnay 
or what's this other one called? It's a lion uh, Merlot. Yeah. Ooh, a lion oh. Merlot. It's like $9.99 a bottle. So for our friends who are 21 and up and partake in the alcohol, this is a great way to save species, drink wine, and forget about the apocalypse that is our world. <laughs> I process things through humor. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Great idea. Cool. Love that. Well, love that. We thank you guys so much. All right. Well, you heard Kenzie. <laughs> you, can, you can get some wine now. But thank you guys so much for listening again this week. We appreciate you all so Bye. much. Now go out there and make a difference. Bye. Bye, (laughs) y'all.